For everyone with an interest in NASH, or more broadly, fatty liver disease, Surf's Up, Season 3, Episode 2 of Surfing the NASH Tsunami. Our coverage of Day 1 of NASHTAG 2022 starts now. Today on Surfing the NASH Tsunami. If you're wondering why I'm talking where the opening quote should be, here's what happened. 110 full episodes into this podcast, we just recorded from a remote on-site location for the first time. It was an experience, and we want to get this podcast out to you as soon as is reasonable, given that Nashtag goes on tonight and tomorrow. So, after my friend Grace does her intro and a little business, I'll tell you what we've been through today and why this episode is going to sound a little bit different, and then we will get started immediately. Over 140 NAFLD and NASH stakeholders have come to Park City, Utah, for the 6th annual NASHTAG meeting. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader, Dr. Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green, and this week's guests, hepatology researchers and key opinion leaders Professors Scott Friedman and Quentin Anstey, Dr. Mazen Nuruddin, and Global Liver Institute President and CEO Donna Cryer as they discuss some of the highlights from NASH Tag Day 1, today on Surfing the NASH Tsunami. This special coverage of Day 1 of NASHTAG 2022 is sponsored by Dia Pharma. Dia Pharma is proud to support surfing the NASH tsunami in its activities to raise awareness of and foster discussions about the NASH epidemic. Dia Pharma offers non-invasive, mechanistic biomarkers like CK18 that provide early, biologically plausible indications of changes in disease activity for use in NASH drug development studies for research use in the U.S. and Canada, and not for use in diagnostic procedures. If this episode sounds funny, there's a good reason for it. We are in Park City, Utah, where we learn, we have learned that a lot of the audio recording that we usually use, like Riverside, who I occasionally complain about, but I'm a big fan of right now, because it doesn't work. So we are recording this entire episode on Google Meet. I am actually looking at uh, Mazin and Stephen and Quentin, who are sitting across the table from me at our mini super spreader event. And we have Louise uh, on the phone from the UK. The whole thing is going through Google me. I can't promise the quality of the sound, but we will have interesting conversation for the next 45 minutes, and we will get that out to you folks later today. So with that, why don't we just get started? Simple groundbreaker, simple question. The thing you liked best about yesterday, it could be content, it could be the field of meeting, it could be anything. What was the one thing you liked best about yesterday? Very simple for me, seeing old friends in person. Uh, I think, Stephen, you've stolen my suggestion there as well. It like really was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it really was a great opportunity to see people not in a Zoom window. And have we ever met before yesterday in person? I don't think we have. I'm not we I don't believe we had yeah, before yesterday. No, okay. Okay, I, I, I met Mazin in Arizona originally, right? And Stephen yes. uh, for a couple of years, but no, it's the first yeah. time we are, which, which puts you one up on Louise. I've never met face to face. So, Mazin, you've seen you, Roger. Actually, my favorite of the day was hearing the two stories about people, one of them you got hurt on the Peloton. I'm sorry, I can't. I can't so we cannot do my Peloton story on no, 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 I'm just going to say you're not the only one who got hurt on the Peloton. And now I don't feel bad about not having one because every time Donna Pryor talks about her Peloton, being the thing that keeps her going, I said, gee, I should get one. So, Louise, what was the thing you liked best about yesterday? Well, as I'm not there, I'm going to say the scientific content from the beginning into the end of the day that I listened to. <laughs> We're finishing with Naima Corey. Obviously, Marzen's session I really enjoyed. I'm going to be the scientific one here today, which is highly unusual. <laughs> That's it. 
And actually, it's not unusual at all. You're usually as well referenced as anybody else is, sometimes with different references. So what we're going to do, because we have about 45 minutes right now, is we're going to go around and each of us is going to talk, each of you, I don't know what I'm going to do yet exactly, but each of you is going to talk about one paper or one session yesterday that you thought was particularly compelling or provided useful information. You can cheat and it could be something you presented the first time or it could be something someone else presented. And uh, then if we have more time, we'll go back and do it again. Stephen, I'm going to ask you to go first because the FXRs were the first thing in the meeting that wasn't Michael Charlton. If that's one of the things you want to pick up on, I thought that was really interesting instead of Quentin. So why don't you talk a little bit about your FXR presentation? Sure. So, well, I think we would be remiss if we didn't say something about Michael's presentation. To start off with, he does a fantastic job of getting the tenor and the mood of the meeting off to a great start and he knocked it out of the park again yesterday with his year in review. i a little bit saddened by the fact that he had to show that San Antonio, my home city, was apparently the <laughs> least active city in the entire United States. So I'll have to walk more steps to make up for my colleagues in San Antonio. But I agree with Louise. The day was packed with data just from the kickoff at 7.30 until we, we actually had to put a halt to the meeting at 7.20 last night. Almost a full 12 hours of interaction and discussion was fantastic. And just a preview to today, it's only going to be beat by what you hear today. Today will actually go an hour longer. So we'll actually go all the way to 8 o'clock tonight. And maybe beyond that, we'll see how the uh, interaction with the FDA goes. Some of us who are having dinner scheduled at 8 o'clock tonight should let our dinner guests know that we should probably book the table for much later. Yeah, (laughs) that that's one conversation we're not going to cut off early. We'll go until people feel like some sort of resolution has been made and that we're going to make some changes. Mm-hmm. But anyway, back to <laughs> back to, to FXR. So just real quick, I think the whole section we did differently than we had in years past. In years past, we had taken a presentation from a Congress, AASLD or EASL, on a drug that was presented and we would do pros and cons. What we did this year was just take classes of drug and kind of summarize the data we had relative to them and then open it up to open mic discussion. So we went through FXRs, FGF-19s and FGF-21s. I did the FXR piece. Vincent Wong, I thought, did an amazing job with FGF-19. That's the one I was going to talk about. I thought he had a very, very difficult task. He was getting great data, yours, but a very difficult task about how to explain what was going on. I thought he presented my data better than I presented the data. I mean, I think he did an elegant job with it. And, and then Rohit uh, did a very nice summary on FGF-21. And so speaking of the FXRs, doing a deep dive into where we are with that, th- this is what started the whole NASH movement, at least really getting it on track as far as developing a drug for NASH, starting off with the Flint trial six years ago, and then turning that into the Regenerate study. And we all know the issues with that, the the therapeutic index has kind of been the challenge with the FXR class, looking at efficacy versus adverse event profiles. In total, there have been about eight FXRs that have been studied to date. And I showed a slide speaking on the pleiotrophic mechanism of action of this drug. And there may be differences within the FXR XR class as far as efficacy relative to liver fat content reduction, ALT reduction, fibrosis improvement, also some differences in the prevalence of pruritus and LDL increase and HDL decrease. 
Uh, however, as a general rule, I think we can all feel comfortable in saying that pruritus and LDL increase are generally a class effect. Having said that, there are still FXRs in play. There have some that there are some that are no longer being developed. We lost metacrins to FXRs this year, as well as Anantas. Uh, I mentioned already the intercept beta cholic acid is still working to try to get FDA approval and resubmitting their package of data with additional safety data sets as well as efficacy. So it's still pending in that regard. I don't think the overall FXR class is a non-starter anymore. I do think that the pendulum has shifted from the thinking that the FXR class will be the backbone of therapy for NASH. My comments were, if we can reduce the dose of the FXR, maybe mitigate some of the adverse event profile and add it to another agent, we could boost the efficacy of the second agent and synergistically get a little further down the road as far as improving the histopathology of these patients. So the other comment I'll make about this, there was some discussion following that talk about adverse event profiles. Rohit was moderating the session and asked several of us what we thought the biggest challenge with the drug was. Myself and Vlad thought pruritus was the bigger issue here. My reason for saying that was mainly my patients are asymptomatic. And when I put them on a drug and two weeks, four weeks later, they're coming to me complaining of itching to the point where they're complaining of itching. And I'm not asking about, do you itch? At that point, I can almost assure you that most of those people will eventually quit taking the drug or would not take it with any rigor. Now, that was countered by many other people saying they thought the hepatobiliary issues were the biggest concern with this class of drug, gallstone formation, issues with potential dilly. There was a robust discussion, good discussion, I would say, but there was disagreement as to the severity of hepatobiliary impacts on this class. But I would just say that that is one of the challenges that's going to have to be be dealt with as we move forward. And quite frankly, that's my whole reasoning for lowering the dose of the FXR and pulling it in in combination with something else. At the end of the day, the ideal therapy, and I showed this slide also, is therapy that has histopathologic benefit across the board, but also there's benefits on many of the extra hepatic complications that our patients suffer from, from liver fat content reduction to lipid lowering to glycemic control and weight loss. So there is an opportunity for FXRs to come in and augment the histopathologic benefits, but just having this hashtag real talk conversation this morning, there's not a lot of benefit on glycemic control, certainly not benefit on lipid lowering or weight loss to any significant degree. So again, I think at the end of the day, they're not dead, but they're best suited for combination therapy in my mind. Maybe I'll just stop there and turn it over to the group for thoughts or... I got to make a quick comment. It's really important. It's impressive that it's six o'clock in the morning. We have half an hour left. I, I got to make this comment. So mm -hmm. it's impressive that you have that such a memory even before finishing your whole cup of coffee so <laughs> great job summarizing <laughs> okay great for, job summarizing for those, this. For those, for those who are listening it, and don't it, get the point it's, it's 9 15 this morning <laughs> local time and they were celebrating Stephen's birthday and the happy birthday time. Stephen and yeah. the coffee is still not finished <laughs> that's impressive I'm not gonna do that I'm gonna be much slower it's like a dead battery so excuse <laughs> me until I finish my coffee that's okay <laughs> so Craig so and I were talking about this before you came in I've said this before, but I'm not going to tick as many people off as badly or they can't really do a lot to me about it. But I think this class dodged a bullet that Oprah ran into some of the troubles that it ran into because the way markets tend to develop in pharmaceuticals. Historically, first drug to market winds up having the best commercial return of any product in the class until the day that it goes generic. 
And the first class that gets approved tends to set the path in terms of how do we think about what are we trying to wrap drugs around. So Stephen just talked about how do we wrap FXRs around other therapies to get maximum benefit. I think if OK had gotten approved, the conversation would have been in the opposite direction. Yeah. And, yeah, that, and that, that would not have been a good thing for anybody. It, maybe the intercept shareholders, but other than that, I don't think it would have been a good thing for anybody. In that regard, it's fortunate. Fortunate for some people, but fortunate for the U.S. So, Stephen, you made a really interesting point about this, which is, you know, this balance between efficacy, safety, and tolerability. And I think we need to keep safety and tolerability as almost two separate headings rather than one. But, but it also strikes me with OCA that this is a, well, not OCA, all FX are like this. This mm-hmm. is a, a class where actually we are needing personalized medicine approaches mm-hmm. because what we're currently doing is assuming that you give an FXR agonist, you have the same response in all individuals, and that's clearly not the case. And what we need to do is find ways of stratifying individuals so that we can potentially identify the subgroup more likely to have the hepatobiliary effects. Those are individuals who really one wouldn't want to be treating with these agents. If we can also drill down on the people most likely to get benefit, that further improves the risk-benefit ratio. But there's a piece of work to be done there, which I think at the moment the field really needs to start looking at. Yeah, to your point, I think you you actually foreshadow Arun's talk, where yeah. he jumps into personalized medicine a bit with AI, you know, some of the artificial intelligence platforms. And we didn't just talk about AI digital pathology. We talked about ways to get at stratifying these people mm-hmm. through either polygenic risk scores or other mm-hmm. novel ways of really honing in on patients' probability of response and tolerability to the drug as well. I, yeah, I, I, yeah. So can I just keep us reminded that the FXRs, I just don't want to, you, you're right, it's good for combo, but I think the field is going to all be combo, like type 2 diabetes. And with a drug like this, apparently, like if you go higher in the dose, you get side effects, no matter which generation mm-hmm. uh, you're in. Maybe the second generation is better, less itching, but I think that it's dose related very much. And we talked about this yesterday. We also need to keep in mind the others' agents' side effects, like the FGFs, the diarrheas, the injectable drugs. And I think a lot of of drugs needs to be combined with agent like FXR. So to me, is the FXR, I will still say it's probably a main player and everything is going to be combined at the end of the day. It's just like, what's the right combo? And I really like Quentin's point about personalized medicine, maybe we'll like we'll genotype people at the end and, and start therapy based based on that. This is one of the directions as well. We all agree that combination therapy is likely to be the direction of travel here. It's also then about personalizing that choice of combination to the individual. This is something that actually is going to be increasingly important for us to start handling and you know, building into our phase two and phase three studies so that we really understand the cohorts that we're actually dealing Can with. Can I jump in? Please. Following up on what Quentin's saying, and Stephen agreed with that, this point of precision medicine, precision medicine, when we get this far down the line, is highly expensive. Precision medicine has to start with the minute these people walk through the door of the primary care. We need to be working out the right type of patients to be working through each of these groups. So yes, there is a point to say we need to pick out the people who are going to get biliary problems or puritis towards the end. But we need to have picked out the patients who are going to respond to diet and exercise better, the patients who are going to respond to different changes better. And really, really start at the beginning, not at the end when it's really, really expensive. Everybody sees adding this into primary care as an expense. It becomes more and more expensive the further we get down. So precision medicine is about the person the minute they walk through the door not just when we get to an expensive drug that requires 
requires the right phenotype to be on that drug. I, I will take a slightly different angle on this. I know like weight loss and exercise is the backbone and we would not have been here if everyone lost weight and exercise. We should still try it, but I will go back to the precision medicine that Quentin talked about. We have done that before with other diseases, hepatitis C or genotype one through six. So I won't be surprised one day we'll say PNLP panel is that, TMS6F is, is that, start such a therapy. We need to go there further and start looking at response. I don't recall any more than a study or two that looks at responses with genotype and no one looked at the placebo with genotyping. So I think this is a wide open area that needs to be explored. So you're absolutely right. One of the few studies that springs to mind on it actually was one done with elfibrinol, which was presented at EASL by ourselves. And actually what you saw there was it was not significant, but it was woefully underpowered. But a trend towards greater efficacy in PMPLA3 carriers, which if you think about it, is entirely consistent with the fact that we know that carriers of PMPLA3 are more likely to have a greater beneficial effect from diet, weight loss, lifestyle change, and so on. So it's this idea that one side carrying the genetic variant makes you at greater risk of the disease, but also you've got more to gain by an intervention. And maybe like it's not just the PNLP3, maybe a genetic uh -huh. risk score needs to be thrown in in this because it was not significant. Maybe the other genes are also playing a role. And you need to, yeah, yeah. You, you well, to come out. We're at the beginning of that road, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. that is the point. I would say is that sponsors really need to be building this in right from the get-go in the series. There's often a, a concern that maybe one's going to unearth something that one didn't want to know. And I think that, I think that's a, a unfortunate way of thinking about it. I think it's much better to build this in of knowledge, except that there will always be tolerability issues, downsides to any compound, but actually look to see how you can stratify and mitigate it. Indeed, you can argue that you can risk stratify randomization in the future based on those, rather than one right now, the type 2 diabetes. I mean, it's an important factor, but in the future, you might have more success if you genotype well and randomize per genotype. Yeah, in the future, I think we get there, right? Uh, there are just two things I'd like to comment on real quickly. One, Stephen's point about the terms of pruritus and compatibility are if you can't get people to stay on a drug for more than two weeks, it doesn't matter. Nothing else matters. Indeed. Right. And part of the reason to go to combination therapy here is everything's got problems. Problems have to countervail. Just personal experience. 11 years ago, they told me that taking four doses of your avoid might save my life, and I couldn't get past two of them because there was too much itching and I was throwing a heart rate to 80 with a blood pressure of 100 over 60. I was falling asleep in the middle of the day and I said, I just can't do the third dose of this. Turned out fine, but I literally, yeah. knowing what the consequence could be, could not tolerate one more dose. So we have to keep all that. One of them's going to drive us to combination therapy is exactly, and whether it winds up being phenotyping or personal preference or both, who can tolerate what? Yeah, so just for the sake of time to keep moving, I want to, yeah. we're still on the first talk. So I just want to rope in the hormones FGF19 and FGF21, just to further the point you made about route of administration, because there was a good question that came up yesterday about, you know, these are injectables. The FGF19 is a daily injectable. The 21s are working through weekly, biweekly, monthly injections. What is the right counterplay between between route of administration frequency and then efficacy? And I think that was a good discussion. My comment about the FGF19, you know, I think we all agree that this compound has biological activity 
in the liver. And just following on the tails of, of FXRs, and I thought this was kind of cool that it happened right after the FXR talk, is you know, FGF-19 works through FGF-beta-clotho 1C and 4C, or 1C and 4. And so there's this idea that FGF-19 agonism is, is going to work on peripheral uh, adipose tissue insulin sensitivity and downregulate free fatty acid flux to the liver. And maybe that's the reason why you see rapid liver fat content reduction on PDFF. Then there's the whole other action through FGFR4 and its effects on bile acids. And is that the bigger play here? What's the role of the bile acid inhibition relative to the role of decreasing free fatty acid flux? If we can learn more from that, we can take the lessons learned from the FGF19 class and apply them to either combination therapies that we have in play today, or as we begin to design novel therapies in the future to get around some of these issues that we face with LDL increase or whatnot. And then the FGF21 class, that is a very, very interesting class because we have drugs that aren't doing a thing, and we have drugs that look to be quite effective. And we have drugs that cause weight gain, and we have drugs that cause weight loss. I mean, we have drugs that are inducing people to go chase carbs, and we have drugs that are causing causing people to not chase carbs. I mean, it's just really bizarre with this class of drug, how variable. We talked about FXRs being kind of a little bit different. You know, we thought that maybe the non-steroidals would be more protective against some of the, the safety issues and tolerability issues versus the non-steroidals, that sort of thing. But I think with the 21s, we are literally at the beginning of understanding this class fully, and it is the wild, wild west. But I'm super excited about it. I guess I walked away a little bit yesterday feeling that there wasn't that robust excitement with the FGF21s. And maybe I took away a different feeling than others, but I am excited about the 21s, despite the fact that it's injectable, despite that there, the fact there are some tolerability issues with GI. I think this class has an opportunity when used in the right patient population, the more advanced patient population, as an induction therapy to get these people under rapid control. We are going to see uh, extra hepatic effects that are very, very promising for some of these drugs, whether it's weight loss, lipid reduction, glycemic control. We've seen that with this class. Mm -hmm. So I am I'm high on the 21s coming out of, of NASHTAG 2020. I, I agree. With, I totally agree mm -hmm. with that. I mean, uh, my point was between the FXR and FGFs, I think they're intimately close to each other. I think that access is very important and we'll be talking about it. Then TH beta is, is something different. And you have, for instance, GLP-1s is mm -hmm. daily weak injection. It's great. It, uh, you lose weight. But to Stephen's point, the FGFs has direct effect on the liver and that's important and that axis is in the pathophysiology of the disease and we need to address that axis and that underlying pathophysiology. So I totally agree. One of the things I heard three or four people yesterday because I just interviewed people because I don't know enough to be dangerous anyway but I don't know if to ask questions. Three or four people raised the concern that peg and falling apart in 48 weeks scared the stuffing out and out of connect and those were the two things I heard that people took out of yesterday maybe more than they went into it with. Now to have the commercial and medical sophistication that you just exhibited to say, it's maybe an induction drug, it may only go six months, right? And then we might run out of room with it. But for a lot of patients, those six months are really going to matter. That, I think, is what everybody needs to start thinking about along with comp. Combination therapy isn't only which drugs are you taking at the same time, but it's if you plot a flight path for a patient, right? As we go from Wright Brothers to fifth generation strike fighters, right? right? As we plot a flight path, flight path is also temporal. It's got, it's got a time dimension in it. Yeah, so this is where I will get kind of uh, cross-eyed with some of my colleagues. 
colleagues because there's this thought that if, if a drug is not moving fibrosis, it's because we're not treating long enough. And, and that's a comment I hear over and over again. But I really believe that fibrosis is more dynamic than what people give it credit for. And until you become portal hypertensive cirrhotic, we can move the needle on fibrosis quicker with the right drug. Hitting the right, And it may be personalized medicine. It may be it takes the right drug and the right patient to move the amount of fibrosis as quickly as we'd like to move it. But I think the 21 class, look, we may have issues with ADAs, with anti-drug antibodies. We may have issues with tolerability. But if we dose it in the right patient for the right length of time, I think we could have the effect that we want, not just on the liver, but on the extra hepatic benefits and transition them over to something else for the long haul. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's... Well, that's not bad. I mean, it's, it's just what you just did that not everybody does is think about this in terms of if I've got four bats in a game and I have four singles, I'm going to get runs in as compared to I swing for the fences every time. If I strike out, I strike out. The good news about... Sorry for, sorry for the baseball metaphor, folks, but it's, it's the right sport for the, this. The good news yeah. about this is, yes, we in 2021, we were hit with some more negative news in drug development at Nash and Peg Belferman. And unfortunately, uh, Albert Furman, for different reasons, were thrown into that camp. But looking in 2022 and forward, we have a dynamic group of drugs that are going to revolutionize this field and change it. But uh, I digress there. Maybe just for the sake of time, we should. Let's go to AI. Move, yeah, yeah, let's move on. Well, let's see what Quentin wants to talk about. Well, whatever, whatever anybody wants to talk about. Go ahead. Hi, Quentin. I mean, we were spoiled for choice yesterday, really. I guess. One of the areas that no surprise interested me was the discussion about biomarker development, both from the updates from Nimble and from Litmus. Uh, I think that was another area already in our conversation this morning. We've been talking about how we can better stratify, how we can better identify patients. And some of the answers, not all of them, but some of the answers, I think, will be coming from these two consortia in that respect. We saw very nice data, which Arun presented, looking at the first cut from Nimble of their analysis of biomarkers. And that was previously presented at ASLD, gave some very interesting insights. Similarly, from the Lipner side, we had the first cut of the Metacohort data. Now, there are some interesting differences between those two sets of results, actually, which it's, it's worth spending a moment on. One of them was that in the Nimble cohort, uh, they found that ELF performed better than FIP4, whereas in the Litmus cohort, the performance of ELF was actually not superior to FIP4. And, and that's something that's worth a moment or two of pause both of them follow very similar pathways in terms of reading biopsies, curation of samples, processing, and so on. One of the big differences, however, was the makeup of the two cohorts. So uh, Arun very nicely demonstrated that they'd gone for an even spread of fibrosis stages. So 20% F0, 20% F1, mm-hmm. all the way up. Which, if you think about it, means that you have at least 40% of F3, F4 in that population. In contrast, Litmus used a leftward skewed population, which is more applicable into what you would be applying the thing in. And there is actually a question of spectrum effect here. Now, I already said that if you even it out, you don't have a spectrum effect, but that's not quite how I would interpret it. Spectrum effect is an occurrence whenever you compare mm-hmm. two different cohorts. And actually, there was a spectrum effect because one cohort was heavily enriched for more advanced disease, whereas the other one was actually unenriched. Yeah, and your PPV value is quite different <laughs> in the, between these two spectrums. So, <laughs> this is a, this is a very so subtle nuanced. argument. It's, but it's, yeah. just, it's not a spectrum effect in the sense that you have an even distribution. There is a spectrum effect in the sense that when you look at this from a population level, it's skewed toward more advanced disease. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, and that's a really important right. take right. message there when you're thinking about which set of results is correct. The answer is they're probably both correct because for the population they've been applied to. Yeah. <laughs> so does that mean that because of the data that Litmus put out showing FIP4 is really good and it's the left spectrum of the disease that ELF, uh, not, I'm sorry, not ELF, FIP4 performs really well in a real world cohort in primary care? So really well, I think, would not be the phrase I would use. Sure, I agree. I agree. It came up like, really well in your cohort, but I do agree. It's like more suited to what I would say is that it performs not badly. No. And in fact, that is the big challenge in the field because you have essentially a free test that's not bad. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you this. Let me just jump straight to the chase. So for our listeners, from your perspective, looking at these huge data sets, ELF and FIP4, are you, I'm just throw an action item out there. Are you thinking today that you would initially screen with FIB4 if you have an indeterminate or positive value to FIB4, that you would chase that with an ELF because you like it more as a second-tier test to stratify the advanced disease as opposed to an initial test where you're really trying to maybe get at excluding patients? Absolutely. So I think this is a, a, a really important point. FIB4 it's very cheap, it's very easy to apply. It is therefore very good to rule out disease and it allows you to enrich the population that goes forward and improve the performance of a second-line test. Now, that could be ELF, it could be uh, FibroScan. You can mm-hmm. argue about what you right. use next till the cows come home, but actually it's how you gain the situation yeah. to improve the performance of the second-line test. And it's, I not wanna... hard. it's not hard anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, so also... Now, far, it's got a place in our hearts, <laughs> Also, for, for, for before, I totally see it this way. And I also want to keep us reminded that correlation with outcomes is very important. And ELF is doing very well with that, VCT and MRE. I want to remind people of the excellent JF paper that uh, came exactly. Yeah. So the outcomes with FIB4, almost half of the patients that were in the lower indeterminate zone had events, if I remember correctly. I think the thing we've got to take away is that any biomarker that accurately stages fibrosis will have prognostic value mm-hmm. because the presence of fibrosis has prognostic value. So, you know, it, it's true of FIB4, it's true of natural fibrosis score, it's true of ELF, it's true of FibroScan. It will probably be true of any other good fibrosis biomarker that comes along. Now, it would be remiss before we transition away from Quentin Tomazin if we did not hear some sort of English colloquialism today <laughs> about the pig going to the trough or something. You I thought the cows come home when yeah. we said that. That's more of a Texas thing, I think. <laughs> That's become global. Yeah. Everybody, everybody claims that. You're going to have to give me something. I take that back. New Yorkers, we've never claimed cows. Manhattan does not have a lot of cows. Okay, but but it's, oh, there are a lot of people who do claim it. So I'll come back to you. Time out. Asking me that like that is not correct. Louise is laughing. Louise, do you have a colloquialism to lend to this conversation? You're going to bail right now on this one? Got it. No, I'm leaving into it. So before I go to the topic, and I know we're short on time, but I really want to congratulate Stephen, Vlad, Rohit, and Michael on this great conference. I was in here last time, and I do regret I listened to it online, and it's it's just fantastic. I think it's the conference for Nash. A huge amount of data, open discussion. People were fist fighting it. No, they were not (laughs) fist fighting it. But it's really 
highly scientific topic. And if people want to know about Nash, they should log into that. Not because I'm in the scientific committee now, but I think it's really high quality. <laughs> so So the topic on artificial intelligence, and I want to start with a comment that Rohit made. He's like, you guys talked about pathology and there's so much beyond that. And I think he's right. But that was the task to talk about path AI and histo index. But I want to also to talk about some of the AI that Dr. Sanyal mentioned in his mm-hmm. talk, which I, I think was brilliant talk. So I'll get to that in a second. For But for path AI followed by histo index, they are eye-opening to a lot of downsides on pathology. So path AI um, has done a great job in the last year or so. They showed us how they can correlate with the central pathologist. And part of the process is, we talked about it, this is another episode, so I don't want to go into much details. I just want to give the update from the national. The part of the process is that they have to validate against three pathologists. Mm-hmm. And the three pathologists, when they put them together, they correlate well. Path AI does the same thing. Remember, three pathologists is not an easy task in a clinical trial with 2,000 people. <laughs> That's a lot of work, a lot of delays, and a lot of that. Yeah. You were on this a couple episodes ago in virtually same words. Just like in a, in a short words, like we talked about, like how they can improve granularity, improving placebo response, and decrease the need for 20,000 pathologists. But yeah. I think what I was excited about to hear from them that they gave us slides that their discussion with the FDA and it seems that there's a process ongoing and the qualification process is through showing that they correlate with pathologists and they can do as good job as the pathologists. So the Path AI is expecting that they will be in clinical trials for screening and measuring treatment response sometime in 2022. This is music to my ear. Mm-hmm. I hope it's going to happen. 2023 is fine for me. Which becomes, and just for the sake of time, I'm going to have to go in a moment to yeah. kick off the next session. But this becomes important, Mazen, for those companies that are potentially reading out 2022. If there's a pivot to AI digital pathology that's acceptable by the agency, does this mean that these companies should rethink the way they interpret their primary endpoint? There's a lot of companies I can think of that are going to be faced with that, including a company that's going to announce phase three day in mm-hmm. 2022. Mm-hmm. So, so and, and and that and that becomes really important yeah. when we look at the at the work that Quentin and his team have done with ballooning and histoindex showing that, I mean, it was amazing to see the slide from Naima saying yeah, one yeah. cell everybody agreed on. The rest, there was very little agreement. Oh, just for those who didn't hear the day, one out of 1138. It wasn't one out of six. It was one out of 1138, right? One out of 80,000 cells. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. I wish 1138, somebody found it. And then they agreed on one of them. So, yeah. so, so that's my point. So if you're we're, a we're developer and you look at that, you're like, oh my gosh, it's worse than flipping a coin. No, no. No, it's worse than needle in a haystack. Yes, it's, I mean, it's awful, right? So I think what it means is we also need to be taking a long, hard look at this absolute loss of ballooning as mm-hmm. a trend. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Because, because it's you know, the, it is the problem. It's the big problem in clinical trials. So well, and what I didn't cells. ask yesterday was. Histo Index and Path AI have and have done some, and the, and the collaborators with those guys have done some amazing work in identifying histopathology that is linked to more aggressive NASH. And I wonder if that's a topic of discussion today at the Fireside Chat. Do we begin to look at lessons learned from some of these AI digital pathology uh, outputs to say, you know what, ballooning is nice if you see it, but we can't agree on it. But what about 
Mallory Dink bodies? What about portal inflammation? What about something else? Can we make a couple tweaks to our histopathology endpoint until we can get beyond the biopsy? Can we make a couple tweaks here where we can get better agreement on, reduce variability in, and, and get to truth quicker? So this is a really important point. And, you know, if you think about the spectrum of how you can leverage AI, right now what we're trying to do is we're, making, we're trying to make a machine see the same things that a man sees. Right. But the other end of the spectrum is the black box approach. <coughs> and I think we touched on it a little bit yesterday, yeah. where the, the concept is that actually it doesn't really matter what it is the machine sees in the biopsy. It's whether whatever the machine distills out of the biopsy links to a hard outcome right. uh, at the end of Mallow right. event. Yeah, which is exactly right, right? I mean, what we're doing now is we're collecting all this data and we're ignoring the data to simply make it sound like a mind. Stephen, I have one thought I want to know real quickly, just so you have it, and come back to tomorrow or something. One of the things I took out of meeting, Michael started the day by talking about the idea that it's a small companies who are doing the drug development. The idea that the people who are doing the drug development are underfinanced leads them to have to make decisions that might not be in the best interest of the disease, or really the best interest of anybody, because they've got to make them fast before they run out of money. That falls through a whole bunch of things, including your comment about if you've got data coming in 22 and you think this is coming in 23, what do you do? Can you afford to wait? Well, that's a great point. But that gets me around to the whole other discussion we had yesterday of combining the data that we have instead of everybody being so stovepiped mm -hmm. in their analysis. Let's bring the tens of thousands of patient data sets we have together. Let's mine that for what it's worth and use that to leverage the next stage of development. Indeed. And we have, there have been talks about this. Yeah. You asked about investors. From investor standpoint, between the news that Hindu and Histo Index and Tati are, are coming in 2022 and 2023, and I think we're talking to Quentin and other people that how to move beyond the biopsy, I think this is the right time for investors to jump into the field, not get out of it, because Path AI and Histo Index, they're going to be soon in the game reading histology, and I think we might move beyond the biopsy as soon as four years or so, or is that too ambitious or too late? That's not ambitious enough. Not ambitious enough, okay. Give me in terms of the reality of how it's going to roll out. Do you get there that fast? I think it is knowing what the cohorts are like around both the ones in the United States and the ones in, in Europe, mm -hmm. I think it is reasonable that there will be a body of evidence to suggest that one can move to non-invasives. Whether it will be sufficient for the regulators at that point, time will tell. But the key thing is that there will be multiple cohorts which can all be used. You know, one big study is not sufficient here, and that's the strength of right. having nimble and let must yep. potentially other players coming into this space as well. Um, because we do need to show it again and again and again to provide a compelling evidence set for, for that move. Why don't we do this? If you guys have to go, go. Yeah. All right. Louise, let's stick around for talk for a few minutes about how to wrap up what will be certainly an unusual episode by our standards. First of all, personally, the, the point that Michael made in his talk about the small companies doing all the development, I think the importance is undervalued. Although Stephen, I think, did it on that one issue. But if you listen to Vincent Wong's presentation of the old firm data, he did, I think, as good a job as anyone could have done as explaining this was a commercial problem. This was not a medical problem. The, the medical problem isn't the drug doesn't work. The medical problem is it's injectable daily. And the, that's a tough row for anybody to hoe as, you know, as a GLP. Once proved if you can get it out to weekly, it's pretty good um, daily. That's a hard thing to do.
But beyond that, all these other places that come into play in terms of people don't have the time or the budgets to do the big studies that would protect them against quirky outcomes. It sounded very much like that. The guys this morning did a really good summary of the day and actually how exciting the day was. I think Michael was right at the beginning. We're all looking for the big drug that's going to cross the market and give the income. That's hard to achieve. One thing that you and I text about was Michael's comment about the underrepresentation of diets and lifestyle in these trials. And they can completely skew the trial. If you don't know how many vegans, how many veggio, veggie, ovo, and lacto vegans and, and yeah. vegetarians and things mm -hmm. like that, they particularly skew your data because their BMIs are lower. They've got an energy intake that's lower. And being a vegan, being a vegetarian, as we all know, does not mean that you're particularly healthy. It's not a necessarily a healthy diet because you substitute other things into it, but it can be. So all of those come into play. What really excited me from hearing this amazing this morning is the ability to look at combination therapies, the ability to look at fast acting medication that can bring you into a, a stable position whereby you can add in some of the other medications. And that for me excites purely because we've seen it in the world of hepatitis C. We started with daily or tri-weekly, to be mm -hmm. fair, injections of interferon. It didn't last very long, but we pegulated it. We went to weekly. It became more tolerable, but it was also about that coaching through that intolerability for many to get them through. So where the discussion went yesterday was, yes, any form of subcut in injection that's daily is a barrier. We see diabetes not be a barrier for, for insulin, for example, where you need it. But then moving to AI and that pathology and the histo index, it is our obligation as scientists to use the samples, particularly histopathology samples, in the best way that we can. And getting the most accurate reading is obviously going to be by AI. It picks up so much more. It can see things. We are constrained, as Quentin said, by thinking about within the human brain and the way that a histopathologist and therefore machines need to see what we see. No, they don't. They see way much more. Mm -hmm. So removing our barrier to thinking allows AI to really tell us what is there, not what we preclude. That was the excitement for me yesterday. It moved through the whole continuum and they've summarized that this morning. What we didn't touch on this morning was the presentation on the cirrhosis session that Manal was leading and that I think Vijay presented on and simvastatin in the clinical situation of reducing and improving some of the outcomes which people weren't aware of before. And his cohort was all cirrhosis. It wasn't just NASH. It wasn't no, just... It's cirrhosis, it's cirrhosis network. It's all cirrhosis. Yeah. But look, Manal's only, Louis, Manal's only come on the podcast three times on this in the last six months. And by the way, has gotten really large download audiences for the twin ideas. The stabilization is an adequate goal at that point in time and you can do it with all the drugs, notably stands. Absolutely. Um, people are actually downloading that. Well, if I want to stabilize my patient as a physician, and which they do for the next drugs coming, mm -hmm. you, you need to maximize what we've got currently. And what we learned certainly on when she did that on the session that we did with her, she put out a load of suggestions to help improve management. They're not going to work for some, but they will work for others. That was a, an important session. We haven't had time to cover everything because we'd be doing the whole day again. But I think the guys this morning just summarized the breadth of what came out, and which is why I was on the science yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep, yep. I had it.
an optimistic reaction and a more, I'm going to say skeptical, not pessimistic reaction. The, the optimistic reaction is all the stuff we're talking about. And specifically, the idea that we, when I came, when I started working in this space three years ago, all anybody wanted to figure out was how do you get fibrosis down level so you can get a drug approved. The science has become so infinitely richer. And, and, and I think part of that is because FXR, because OCA didn't get approved, that people weren't shooting for a target that goes, how do I supplement OCA? It's, what do I need to know here to get this right? And that's been fantastic. The thing that worries me, and part of this is my comment about small drug companies doing development work, is when I was consulting companies on commercialization for marketing research that we did, the point I, I used to make is, you know, it's not very hard to walk 100 yards unless the 100 yards is one bank of a river to the other bank and the river is deep and it's got currents. And then unless you're above. My, my co-religion is don't believe anybody ever walked on water. So that would be the end of that one, right? And maybe it turns out that the bridge is 10 miles down the road. So now you've got to navigate your way 10 miles down the road, bridge 10 miles back up to walk 100 yards. There are so many moving parts in this, and it's so challenging to see the whole elephant as compared to the six blind people touching the elephant, each know what they touch. It's so hard to visualize the whole elephant. When you get outside people in this room and, and the folks who are really the top tier academics, as you start going into more commercial spaces and more finance spaces, it, it gets harder to do. So you start to wonder, I start to wonder, how do you actually get to where you have to get to? How do you go one step at a time and plot that one out? I think it schools out yet on whether that's going to be easily easy to do, hard to do, or impossible to do. But um, it does give some cause for pause. When I listened to people yesterday talking about what they took out of the FGF 21 talk was, well, pecked off her and fell off the, the off the road in 48 weeks. And out of connecting and what's going on here, and can you really trust anything until you've got 48-week studies? And Stephen's point was right. There are re other reasons that might not be a 48-week drug, but if you give it to an F3 or an F4 for 24 weeks... But I think, real, go ahead. I think when we did the the session where we discussed the FGFs, didn't he comment that lots of people have different FGFs and our own makeup says what we do? And I asked the question of whether we can phenotype people for FGF, to which he said that's not been done yet. Right. And Peg Bell-Furman may well just have failed and been a spectacular failure because it was the wrong phenotypes. And that's where precision medicine, and we touch on that a little bit, right. comes in. Now going back to that study and seeing if you can really phenotype them for which FGF they're going to respond to, that's where it gets exciting. I know earlier on I talked about basically precision medicine is in the individualization of medicine for that person from the minute they walk through the door rather than just the expensive end at the other side. But when we're talking about drugs that with billions invested in them, this is where you are right. Small companies without that finance can't do that work. And therefore, are you on a hiding to nothing? So the maximization of precision medicine in clinical trials with a consortium, with the opportunity to combine their data, as I've discussed before, and Stephen mentioned today, we need to come to this together to solve the problem to be able to get the drugs to market. I don't think we're going to be doing this as individual spots on a Dalmatian. It's the Dalmatian that the hole that's going to get through it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And by the way, I've never seen a spot on a Dalmatian that won a dog show, but I have seen Dalmatians that won a dog show. <laughs> I totally agree with that. And in that regard, maybe the most encouraging thing that I heard yesterday wasn't even in the meeting per se, but it's all the organization that's going around consortium to compile all the data. There are tons of data at this point. We're thick with data and short on integrated insight. And I think Nimble and Litmus are starting to prove that, you know, and what Quentin said this morning that was interesting is, all right, so Nimble went after it one way, Litmus went after it another way. When you take the two insights and, and, and you combine them and you don't ask who's right and who's wrong, you assume they both did good work. That's why do we take everything we learned and put it together in an integrated package that people can execute on? I'm, I'm going to go back to your precision, your precision medicine comment on that, which is that 
there isn't going to be enough resourcing to do what these folks think of as precision medicine every time somebody walks into primary care. So it might not be a bad idea to look for a different nomenclature for what you're describing. Because precision medicine, I mean, what happens is, you know, things become their own brands, right? So precision medicine now has conferred on it expensive testing, very, very sophisticated understanding, because precision is that kind of thing. If you go back to Stephen's metaphor about the Wright brothers and fifth generation strike fighters, that's about increasingly precise flying over time. So I think your point is right. I was watching their faces, which you couldn't see. It gets lost a little bit in the metaphor when you use that term. So the question becomes, how do we start to thoughtfully for the first time we see a patient, understand what is within the can of the primary care doc to do, and how can we get, help the primary care doc get information efficiently that will help them do that. Um, if you go back to Alina's comment at the end of the year about using AI to go through medical records, that, that is precision medicine in a sense. It's a lot closer to what you're talking about, what you're talking about today, but it wouldn't be defined as precision medicine. It's going to get defined differently somehow. Oh, absolutely. They do it. For example, for HIV, they look through the alternate diagnosis, herpes, and other things that could alert you to that person being at HIV risk, so they go through with AI for a lot of stuff. So Lena's absolutely right. We need to be using all of these. But then saying that you've got to have medical records that are uploaded, that that takes the cost of some of them. Those things could be prohibitive as they're seen at the moment. But I think in the future with electronic records, more or less, certainly in the Western and developed world, being fairly standardised, it's an opportunity. Agreed. And I'm looking forward to today. That's all I can say. Donna, do our audience and Scott, me a favour. And give us one example of something you heard yesterday that will make it easier for you to advocate and make you more effective in doing so. Because we all know no one's more effective than you are when you put your mind to it. So let's do one takeaway from yesterday, at least, that's going to make it easier to do that well. My favorite phrase that, thankfully, I heard multiple times was lessons learned. So the fact that we are not losing the benefit of what has been done and not calling things failures, but really looking at um, all the hard work that has gone into the field and extracting the lessons from them so that we can move further, faster from this point on. Okay. Is there is there one example you can give of a lesson we have learned that makes this helpful? I think it is the, as we see it, translating into the combinations um, of, of drugs and the, and the mechanisms of actions so that what we learned was that we should necessarily put all of our eggs in one basket or or think that there's going to be one monotherapy or one mechanism of action, you know, one drug to rule them all, but really that it's more likely to be a combination of drugs, a combination of mechanisms of actions to really move the needle to create favorable outcomes for any individual patient. Okay, super. I want to come back to that because it's one of the things I was fascinated by yesterday. Scott, let's turn to you first. And something that struck you yesterday as being um, really important. Uh, well, first of all, I'm honored to share the platform with Donna. Mm-hmm. And we're both honored to share it with you. So this well, is exactly. a mutual admiration exactly. society. Exactly. But so be, yeah, except I'm the disreputable one here, but go ahead. It's good. <laughs> so um, uh, the way I framed yesterday's sessions were that there was both sobering news, continued unmet needs, but some real promise. The sobering news is mostly on the clinical side. Uh, the promise is mostly on the basic and translational science and technology development side. And also I would say there was a major conceptual sea change in my view in that everyone now agrees that digital methods for studies that employ biopsy have to be validated and integrated into clinical trials. So let me back up a little bit and talk a little bit more about the sobering part. There was evidence that despite early data in a number of different therapeutic trials that suggested response, the larger trials did not pan out, FGF-19 and FGF-21 in particular. And of course, that disappointed 
disappoints everybody, patients most of all, but also the providers. And the truth be told, I worry a little bit because a lot of the growth is built around investment in small companies and investors are getting very skittish because they see uh, there are no short-term home runs. I would still say, though, there are many short-term singles, doubles, and even triples. Um, also sobering is that we don't, as Donna said, have a real grip on where this disease starts, or in other words, I like to say, what's the Achilles heel here? We have mm-hmm. you know, a plethora of abnormalities in fat, inflammation, both within the liver and in other tissues, but we don't know where it starts. Treating one of the abnormalities may or may not be central to the pathogenesis of the disease. And moreover, we tend to still approach the disease as one size fits all. All patients with NASH have exactly the same disease, the same therapeutic targets, and therefore will respond to the same drugs. And I think the analogy that's apt here is to cancer, where for any given cancer, we would give the same chemotherapy. Now we look at cancer, even in a single organ, liver in particular, as many different diseases with many different disease drivers and many different causes, and therefore many different therapeutic targets. And so that transitions my comments to the promising side of the world, which is that we saw tremendous progress in many areas that leverage new technology, digital methods for pathology, which I've already alluded to, AI-based approaches. At least three different platforms were introduced from three different companies. We saw a maturation of our understanding in gene regulation and epigenetics, that is the non-DNA coding regulatory pathways that change gene expression. Uh, We saw continued refinement and engagement in diagnostics. We saw the maturation of organoid technologies and the promise of phage therapies to alter the composition of the microbiome in the gut in patients with NASH. And then finally, we saw stunning data from Matthias Heikenwalder outlining his seminal work identifying the immunologic abnormalities that predispose to NASH liver cancer that are different than liver cancer from other etiologies like hepatitis B and C. So I'm straddling two worlds as a physician scientist. I'm awed and thrilled by the progress in the science and sobered by the slower progress that's going on in the clinical trial space. But to my view, there is zero doubt that there will be therapies that treat this disease. And one of the reasons I say that is because of the natural resolution of the disease in specific patients with NASH. I'm referring mostly to bariatric surgery or sustained weight loss, where we know that the liver harbors this capacity to resorb scar. Mm -hmm. So clearly the liver knows how to do it under very specific circumstances of weight loss. We need to replicate what the liver already knows and find out what those pathways are and then exploit them using the right therapies. And finally, the disease may be more than one disease. And that comes back to the analogy I gave with cancer, which is that we assume that every patient who has a picture of NASH under the microscope has the same reasons they got there. And that may, and probably it's not true. And so what we are moving towards, but not quite yet, is identifying different subtypes of NASH that may be responsive to different types of treatments and maybe even different diagnostics. I should share with you one of the two things that came out of the conversation this morning, one of which you'll find heartening, I think, and the other of which we'll figure out in a minute. We wound up talking about, Stephen was wondering why more people were disappointed about the FGF21 presentation than encouraged. Reason being, they took a look at Peck Belferman and they said, well, at 48 weeks, the entire effect dried up. So how do we know that isn't going to happen with um, the other agents as well? Where that took us was, if that agent can do good things fairly quickly, that we might start to think about patient treatment as, as a pathway, not just think about combination therapies, which is what you're doing at one but point in time. Sequential. But, but, but right. So, so basically, there's a combination platform that's, what am I doing at any given point in time? And then there's right. a longitudinal combination right. platform. And 
I think some of the ground to think about that way was laid in this meeting. People are going to have to get there. But I thought that was encouraging. I thought Vincent Wong did a really nice job of explaining, without saying this in so many words, that the Alder Furman failure was more commercial failure, really, than it was a clinical failure per se. Uh, you know, in one part, because it's hard to envision a daily injectable drug being a satisfactory long-term therapy, but in, in another part, because of what the company was dealing with and what other options they had. And Michael made that point in his beginning of your statement about the small companies are doing the development. Mm -hmm. And the risk there, as you point out, is they might not get the money. The other risk is that they can't afford to cover the whole landscape. So and the final risk is they can't afford more than one failure. Yeah, well, that and, and, and that. Oh, but, the, but by the way, probably some can't afford a success either, right? The, if you take a look at the trial that Merck is doing with the drug they licensed from Alder Furman, it is the trial that we'd like to see lots of the small companies do if they had the money to do it. It's fifty-two weeks. It's lots of patients. Um, the cells are all uh, well powered, and there's a logic for everything they did in it. And a lot of the smaller company trials, the companies just don't have the latitude financial attitude, really, yeah. to do all that. Right. Well, one of the things that de-risks uh, trials is talking to patients early on. Many folks here, you know, have to, you know, panels of patients' advisors on how to develop patient-centered trials, how to keep them as simple as possible while getting the valuable data mm -hmm. that they need. And so I think that there, there is still some room for people to mm -hmm. adopt that particular de-risking strategy. One of the very specific cases in which I've had NASH patients deliver insights is on their willingness to take different modes of therapy. Mm -hmm. So we could answer the question of, is something daily, weekly, oral, injectable? What is the line? What is the trade-off that the people who will ultimately take the drug would satisfy them? And that is information that you could bring back then to your boards or to your investors that mm -hmm. said, you know, we've talked to our ultimate customer and they have given us this information, this feedback. And so rather than simply talking about or, you know, we're hoping for pulling sort of patient centricity from the sky, it's an actual tangible business operating, mm -hmm. you know, process at this point that can be and should be included in the very early stages, but all along through drug development to be able to produce a product that best meets the needs in the most efficient way possible. I think that's half of it. And I don't... I'm not, not I'm yeah. speaking, you know, no, beyond... No, no, this one example, but it's half of what I mean. I mm -hmm. think you're right. Okay, that people can improve their odds by doing right. that. The molecule has but, to work. You know, the molecule is the molecule. But but, but in but, terms but of the even design, beyond, so, so try it this way, right? Mm -hmm. the, the landscape is I'm just gonna make this up six feet wide, right? If you're a big farmer, you can cover five of those six feet. So if it's there, you'll mm -hmm. have a much better chance of finding it. If you're a small company, you can cover two of those six feet, which means if you're not right in the right place. But it makes it more important wait, wait, wait. Than, <laughs> to no, make sure that you pick the right two. That's what I was about to say. You take your bad odds and you mm -hmm. improve them right. by doing what you just described. They're still a lot more exposed than Big Pharma is, right. except that Big Pharma doesn't doesn't do this anymore, right? I mean, as Michael pointed out, well, I've been saying this for 30 years, Big Pharma has increasingly become like Hollywood Studios. Hollywood doesn't make movies anymore. Hollywood buys movies that other people make. And when they decide it's too risky to go with movies mm -hmm. that people make creatively, that's when you get Rocky Seven meets Godzilla Ford because both of those formulas worked. It's hard to get Big Pharma to do what you want them to do. So, so that's one of the things mm -hmm. that, and I think you're right, I think we have to be smart about all the ways that we can play our odds better. But yeah, you know, one other element which Donna knows very well is with respect to patient 
engagement is the disappointment when things don't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some cases, the lack of a suitable trial. I'm thinking of a woman who's a retired educator who has advanced NASH and wants and has had family history of advanced NASH and complications. So they, she knows what's potentially ahead of her. Mm-hmm. And she is, let's just say, committed, if not anxious, to get something that will give her more hope than just waiting for a liver transplant. Mm -hmm. And that's very painful for um, me as a physician to hear and sometimes not to have a trial suitable for her to at least give her hope. Absolutely. The early drafts of our uh, patient-focused drug development meeting are available to attendees here at, at the conference. It was very clear from that meeting from the patients that we want something. It doesn't have to be perfect. We understand that there will be iterations and improvements as there have been in every other therapeutic area. But not to have anything at this point is a huge um, disappointment. But something else that Scott said gives me additional hope, and I hope that everybody picked up on it, was for an op- opportunities for an expanded research agenda. So I think we've been very much in um, trotting over the same ground in a lot in terms of, of trial design and understandably so, you know, given the need to meet two particular regulatory endpoints. However, hearing today at this meeting so much more about the potentials for weight loss from surgery, looking at glucose levels and, and looking at intramuscular fat and, and just seeing far more interdisciplinary thinking about how to approach this problem, how to define the problem, and what the path to solutions may be, I think is exciting, both because I think it will ultimately yield fuller answers, but I also think looking at the field of liver health more broadly in the next few years, it gives us so many other ripe avenues for development. That makes that makes excellent sense. I will tell you that the fastest uptake episode we did in the fourth quarter was Ali Aminian, who nobody knows in this space, talking about Splendor, which is a bariatric study, right? Mm -hmm. With a really powerful message about cirrhosis and weight loss. And people really, in terms of listening, people really picked up on that. And I think the reason is because it was so hopeful. And from from a different place and a different avenue, right? But really a hopeful study. That's exactly the point I'm making and that's why I'm hopeful because we know there's biology underlying this Mm -hmm. that will get us there. We just don't know which parts of the uh, multi-pronged biology is the one that's really the most vulnerable point to affect an improvement. The other point you made I think, is that it'll be different points for different patients, right? Yes. Well, we think uh, so, or I think so. I, I, it, it, look, um, it's funny you talk about cancer. The first time I ever showed up here was in NASH 2019. One of the things I talked about was Nixon, 50 years ago then, declaring the war on cancer like there was a drug that was going to cure all right. cancer, right? Exactly right. Right? And, That's exactly the right analogy. And all the things you're talking about, first we knew that found out that different organs were different cancers, and then the one I chose was breast because it was well before liver. We knew that breast was lots of different cancers. Right. Say, and then eventually you find some common principles. I think it's hopeful that Scott Harris was talking about the ultimate drug this morning, right? There, there are two or three of those dual, and I think Sam Klein's going to talk about it this afternoon. There are two or three of those dual or triple agonists that are putting up 20% weight loss numbers right. in oral agents that you can yeah. take daily that don't seem to have particularly troubling side effect profiles. That would be huge. If it, if it yeah, works. you know, the irony is, and I may have said this on our prior podcast, Roger, but if you were to make a grid and list all the effects the ideal NASH drug would develop, the only one that checks all the boxes is weight loss. Yep. Other drugs check some of the boxes of what you'd like to accomplish. Other boxes checked by other drugs. The only one that checks all the boxes is weight loss. So what on earth is weight loss doing that's reversing the biology that we can't seem to accomplish with pharmacotherapies? Or, or can we, right? I mean, well, that's, uh, that's, that's going to be the next ultimately question. Ultimately, we, we will. Okay. Well, 
part of the problem with weight loss is it commands a level of human um, discipline. Yeah, I mean, we're hardwired to preserve these calories and weight, and largely as we lose weight, and this has been shown in bariatric surgery and other contexts, the body conspires to push us back up to Mm -hmm. the weight we started at. And uh, Mike Charlton gave the example that's been well advertised in the New York Times elsewhere, which is the the sad outcome of the Biggest Loser participants Mm -hmm. in that show, which is that they all gained the weight, sometimes Mm -hmm. more, and when studied metabolically, there was clearly a physiologic conspiracy to get them back to their old obese weight. Yeah, I was 150 pounds heavier than I am right now, and it's a struggle. Very hard. It's a struggle. And you're you're the exception. Um, Yeah, I'm lucky. (laughs) So it speaks to the need for pathways that are multidisciplinary, multifaceted, that, you know, don't depend on someone's willpower, but that really recognize all that we know about um, the psychology and the biology of weight loss and maintenance of weight loss to support people through better use of the weight loss medications, better use of, of diabetes medications, better use of, you know, even by the time we get to uh, a, a drug that has a specific indication for, for NASH, um, we now are, you know, all on record. And uh, I think as Trevor knows, as you know, if you didn't know, now you know um, that uh, weight loss um, is has to be a part of this equation. Mm-hmm. And so how, with even the things that we have now, how can you put together all the pieces of what we like to call care um, to better enable um, a person in and personalized as the so the last uh, you know great word that I've started to hear in a personalized way um, to be to be successful and to be successful long term. I think that's the question we need to start answering, and it becomes a much more um, disease agnostic, device agnostic. Um, you know, it, it's more about the the person and the patient than than all of these different players. Patients are pragmatic. And so let's figure out what works in what combination, in what sequence, mm-hmm. um, for what profile of person. It, I think we can create a lot of winners across the field, um, both on the drug and the device side. And uh, if we really think about how do we continue to drive results for different profiles of patients. I think that's well said. I, mm-hmm. I, you know, the idea of personalizing is not just on the medicine side. It's really, I love to listen to Donna because she truly represents the patient perspective. And personalizing is also how the individual copes with the disease, how they make choices, what are the emotional consequences of their illness and or the therapeutic options that are available to them. That's personalized every bit as much as what genes do they express and what risk factors do they harbor. Oh, yeah. You only have to have one, one bout of them. Um locally advanced cancer in your background to understand all that in a real hurry. Yeah. It changes everything. So let's bring that, you know, all that, uh, you know. Even if you're not a liver patient. Well, let's bring all of that expertise to to the liver field. You know, Mm -hmm. I remember, you know, as a early on as a transplant recipient, feeling very jealous of cancer patients Mm. for all the different things that they that they were able to receive in terms of a whole more holistic mm-hmm. care. And so while, you know, GLI certainly tries to learn the lessons from advocacy from our breast cancer and HIV and hepatitis C colleagues, um, 
we absolutely also want to borrow the excellent um, el- full el- elements of uh, you know 360 degree care that exist for other diseases absolutely. and bring them to the benefit uh, of the, liver patients. That is an amazing comment that you were envious of cancer patients because of the more holistic approach to their care and dealing with their illness. That is amazing. Uh, And I never really thought of it. There is an example that does come to mind that's a very extreme one, uh, which is that uh, when living-related donor transplantation became very hot, uh, everybody focused on the recipient getting their life restored and less so on the donor. Mm -hmm. And there were some uh, adverse outcomes that shook up the entire field and said in, in the donors and shook up the entire field to say, hey, wait a minute, the donor owes, ju- we owe them as mm-hmm. much or more attention, support, programs, uh, both as they work their way up towards donating a piece of their liver and maybe more importantly, when after they've undergone what is major surgery mm-hmm. voluntarily. Yeah. So, um but, well, altruistically. Absolutely. I mean, it's not just voluntarily, right? It's voluntarily and altruistically. Yes. And uh, you, you, you can you're voluntary to do something because they're going to give you a million dollars to do it, or you can right, volunteer right. to do it for completely uh, altruistic reasons, uh, which is what makes right. this so amazing. Absolutely right. And and uh, that's an extreme example, but it's I hadn't really thought of it in the, the more broad context in the which the, in so, the way Donna stated it. So let me give you the flip side because this came sure. up this morning, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we were talking about paritis. Yes. And I was told eleven years ago that I needed four doses. Of Needed to get four doses of Yervoy into me if I wanted to be sure I was going to live. Mm-hmm. I had a recurrence of, of mm-hmm. cancer at that point in time. The median mm-hmm. survival for recurrence was 15 months. Mm-hmm. Yervoy was the only solution we could think of. It turns out that my white cells had taken out the tumor, which made it look a little better. But And I was in such agony after two doses from the level of itching that I was experiencing mm-hmm. and well, the idea that as, as somebody who, mm-hmm. who would Part of how I lose the weight and keep it off is I work out like a fiend. Right. Um, my blood pressure was um, 100, 100 over 60 with 80 beats a minute, and I was falling asleep standing up, sitting in chairs in the middle of meetings. And I just said, I hope two doses is enough because I can't do this anymore. Yeah. I, I, I'm not going to make it another six yeah. weeks this way. Yeah. It's going to make me totally nuts. Yeah. So uh, a moment when you might not have been jealous to be a cancer patient. But, um, well, no, I've but, experienced yeah. puritis, of course, yeah. as, a, yeah. as a rare liver disease patient yeah. uh, having had cholestatic disease. And it's, it, it, it's interesting now. And, um, um, that there are um, medications for for puritis, and I am um, just going to throw out the you know the question to the field of whether it uh, will continue to be for an ultra rare indication when puritis is so much a factor across so many different types of liver disease. It sort of uh, stretches my, uh, you know, rather incredulous that um, it will not ultimately be used across a wider swath of conditions. Well, one one small reassurance. I work with a couple of companies that have helped uncover completely new biology mm-hmm. that explains or that may well explain paritis far better than the, the hokey theories that we've been laboring mm-hmm. under for the last 40 years. And so there's, as with so many things, mm-hmm. there's hope on the horizon. So let me ask you a different kind of question, though, right? Yeah. Because if you go into one of the things that makes oncology special is everyone's everyone was and still most still are cowboys. Labeling means little. Right there's a general faith in drugs, and if I can figure out kind of what this does, I will figure out where I can take it. Right. Um, at the lay level, at least, you know, I don't see a lot of that in hepatology. I don't hear about it a lot in hepatology. That 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 same willingness to go 
out of bounds to the same degree and in the same way. I mean, the, the top, the, the, the top people, yeah, but you get one level down from that, and it's not something. You mean for patients or for, for pa professionals treating patients? How far, how far out of label will I take a drug because I think it might do something? Uh, and, and well, I can't speak for the practice community. I think, but you know, hepatologists tend to be very conservative, uh, and that's uh, and that's partly be uh, it's the temperament or the phenotype of the people that choose it. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's partly also because many of our patients have slowly progressing disease, often with no symptoms for years or decades. And so, you know, they're adhering to the first do no harm admonition of our specialty yeah. or of our, you know, of medicine. And so, you know, trying something uh, outside the norms, uh, number one, is less comfortable for them in an asymptomatic patient. And of course, doctors worry about liability too. Sure. So, uh, yes. Um, but I was going back to Donna's comment about why are they using this in an ultra rare condition when so many people have paritis? And I think that's kind of where you're sitting. Different specialties, you might get a different answer. Mm -hmm. Oh, and, but make and, no mistake. I mean, hepatologists have been uh, <laughs> tried to be as creative as they can using uh, different approaches to paritis. Sadly, none of them really work very well. You know, there was naloxone and rifampicin and, uh, of course, steroids and, you know, a whole mm -hmm. host of, and, and cholestyramine. Mm -hmm. Um, Donna's probably seen or heard of most of them. Not all of them. <laughs> uh, so uh, it's not for lack of trying, but yeah. there weren't really, there mm -hmm. wasn't enough biology underlying or understanding of the right. biology underlying paritis to have more rational uh, drugs. I do think we will be entering an era where that mm -hmm. is available. Not, not quite there, but we're getting there. I am concerned, you know, to my point about, uh, you know, the discipline of the field and the, and the role and of credibility of patients that um, certainly we've had, we have a significant uh, role and interest in ensuring that there is robust investment in liver drug development. Um, I do think that there is also a responsibility to give realistic advice about um, how those drugs are introduced to market. And so um, in, in, in NASH, certainly, I think that people are, are um, being res responsible for recognizing that this is, a, a, you know, when a drug is approved, it will be in a likely in a polypharmacy environment. There will likely be, um, you know, multiple mechanisms of action, multiple NASH drugs, and then multiple drugs for the patient's other concurrent conditions. And so, uh, you know, they should as my pastor would say, govern themselves accordingly when it comes to, it comes to price. Mm -hmm. um, what I would hope uh, that as we see uh, greater development in paritis and other um, uh, symptomatic and hopefully you know uh, real resolution of disease in 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 for other liver diseases that um, they recognize that from a patient advocacy perspective, we're not going to support anything at any price and that we do feel a responsibility to the field as a whole, both for the investment and for the access and to the you know future, future access. And so um, some of the pricing that's come out uh, you know, about uh, puritis, does the math does not work for patient advocacy. Sure. And so, you know, we have concerns. And again, if there had been conversations as there were in NASH mm -hmm. uh, with patient advocacy early enough, there would not be, you know, uh, a risk of backlash at this point post-market mm -hmm. for something that 
patients certainly want, you know, more resolution for, for pruritus. And so I'd ask folks not to have unforced errors and, and create problems and when there didn't need to, to be one and to have very credible strategies and, you know, and, and you know, Roger, your, your background is in, you know, market modeling and, and I think they don't often uh, or model for well, effective not... patient advocacy no. or pressures back on how access is defined and so I would recommend that. Well, it's, it's telling how much modeling comes out of the finance department, right? Because we know... Mm-hmm. Number one and number two is the reality is that mm-hmm. it's a misnomer that people respond to their market, that companies respond to their markets, companies respond to where they get their money, which means if you're headed into the market for the first time, you're going to go where your investors want you to go. Mm-hmm. And by the way, until you've got your $10 billion, until you've got mm-hmm. Lipitor or you've got um, Keytruda right. or um, Mira, you're going to go where your market, where your investors mm-hmm. tell you to go because, and then you wind up with prices that are just too high. Right. And there's enough, there isn't enough patient sensitivity anywhere in that system. I think that's definitely right. true. One last question, okay? We're back here in a year. We're having the same conversation. What's the one thing you think will have changed? And what's the one thing you hope will have changed? Well, maybe I'll jump in first. What mm-hmm. I hope will have changed is to see the first successful or provable trial. I, I, you know, we shouldn't forget that abeticolic acid was successful by any measure. Whether it's suitable for FDA approval, I think, remains to be established. Mm-hmm. But I would like to hope, to hope to see the next drug, presumably that'll be Madrigal's drug, showing some signs that we're starting to get over the mm-hmm. starting line. Yeah, uh, not the finish line. Um, and what I expect to see is continued progress in the non-invasives and the uh, more sophisticated analyses of tissue, because those can be done with existing resources. Now, I could say I would expect to see a successful new drug, but we know that that's a, a three to five year process mm-hmm. from when the clinical trial starts. So I don't think in a year we're going to see a, a breakthrough beyond what we hope will happen with the magical drug. But certainly on the technology development side, using existing reagents, tissues, sera, I do expect to see a lot of progress there. Okay. I, I, I both think and hope that, uh, you know, in the next few months, we will have um, both from the patient advocacy side and the researcher and the drug development side, um, have to strengthened our relationship with, with FDA to the point where there is um, clarity about the mark that we need to meet and a commitment um, to um, move forward once we have met that agreed upon mark. Um, and the second thing is I, I foresee that we will have reached a level of precision in which non-invasive technology to use for what purpose, that we can have meaningful conversations with primary care and um, clinical management uh, will be much easier. So I'm going to give a different answer than I would have given before the first session this morning because we didn't get to this because everybody had run out of the session. But on the way out the door, Mazen made the comment that if he were advising investors, he would tell them to invest in 22 heavily mm-hmm. because he's pretty confident that in 23, maybe maybe even in 22, uh, FDA will sign on to digital histopathology. And if they do that in the next year, that's a huge difference. Right, mm-hmm. and that's so, uh, exactly what I'm mm-hmm. So that's the one I expect to see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the one I hope to see may... The, so when I came here for the first time in 2019, all anybody wanted to figure out was how do you get fibrosis down one level? And I think one of the emergent realities is that for an increasingly large portion of patients, if you can stabilize the liver, that's a good enough outcome. Right. If that becomes accepted widely enough, we can find ourselves in a situation where people will start walking themselves into things like SEMA mm-hmm. and Terza when it shows up, which clearly have the ability to drop weight, do all the right things, and stabilize the liver. Um, if we're willing to accept that as a goal, I think we can move faster even without approvals. Absolutely. And uh, we've known all along that uh, 
the FDA considers preventing progression from non-cirrhosis to cirrhosis a hard endpoint. Mm -hmm. That's not a subpart H because everybody, FDA included, understands that cirrhosis equals complications, cancer, potential death mm -hmm. or transplant. Non-cirrhosis avoids almost all of those with the exception being that occasionally cancers can arise before patients are fully cirrhotic. Yes, and so, and my point, I think, is, that, and I agree with that, is that, and they know that, in the last six months, the volume around stabilizing is enough has gone from that here to about here. If it gets about that much higher, people are going to start taking action on it. And to me, that's the single greatest hope for how we help the most patients fastest. Couldn't agree more. I absolutely agree, and I'll help do all I can to raise the level on that. I'm not trained in medicine, but I am trained in logic. And so stopping progression of the disease has always made sense to me and to our patients. Helping to share that with others um, is, uh, is a fantastic priority. Well, this has been a great conversation. And thanks so much for each of you knowing that you couldn't make it for the first round, saying, hey, I'd like to come back and do the second round so that we got to do this. And I can't imagine two people I had more fun doing it with. So, That's very kind. Thanks Always both enjoy it. Count on me. And, and I will, you won't get rid of me so fast, uh, Mr. Green. I'm not looking for, I'm looking for look, you know, two, two Jewish guys from Long Island of roughly the same age. You know, if I, if I get rid of you, then who's left? That's okay. what we used to say, you're a lonsman. Yeah, we are lonsman. It's true. It's true. Okay. Thanks, everybody. you enjoyed this recording. Please join us tomorrow, January 9th, for our coverage of day two of NASH TAG, including some exciting science breakthroughs and the two fireside chats with regulators, industry, and researchers on whether, how, and when to pivot beyond today's semi-quantitative biopsy system. Until then, stay safe and surf on.